The following audio is from a sermon series called Recalibrate. In this sermon series, we take a look at the DNA of Sacred City Church, the identities and rhythms that are given to us in the gospel, and how we live together in community and on mission. For more information on Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we kicked off our new sermon series called Recalibrate. We got our cool banners and all this stuff up here. Uh, very, I'm personally super excited about this. I believe this is the most important series for our church in the year 2018. Uh, but it is a little bit different than what we do. Typically, we preach exegetically, which means we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. And that keeps me from preaching my hobby horses and getting distracted and just focusing in on one thing. This allows God's word to sort of determine the preaching calendar. And, and what topics we dive into. Uh, we just finished preaching through First Peter, uh, and I believe in the spring, the next book we'll be jumping into is the book of Ecclesiastes, which is supposed to be what scholars say is the most interesting book in the Bible, which will be a cool season for us. But currently, we are in a season as a church where there are some things that we need to dial in on. Uh, and, and this series is meant for us to dial in on those things, specifically the DNA of Sacred City Church. But even more importantly than the the DNA of Sacred City Church or our philosophy of ministry and things of that nature, what it's really getting at is focusing on what is the gospel, 
What are the identities that we receive when we believe the gospel? How does living out of our identity create rhythms? And how does this, when we do it collectively, create a gospel culture where we're making disciples who make disciples? See, that's what we're all about at Sacred City Church. That's what Jesus was all about. His great commission, the last thing he told his disciples to do was to go and make disciples of all nations. And so we take that seriously here at Sacred City Church. And so we're going to take this time uh, through these, I think it's eight weeks now, all the way up to uh, Resurrection Sunday to work through some of the stuff. And what we're doing here is we're taking what we have down on paper, the content that we have on our website, and we're reexamining how do we flesh this out in our day-to-day lives. What does it look like for us to live as gospel people in community and on mission? And last week, we began this series by laying the foundation of the church, which, of course, is the gospel of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. We spent time working through Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. And if you weren't here for this, I highly recommend you. I'm not trying to promote myself here, but I, I highly recommend going back and listening to that podcast, working through it, thinking deeply through those things, because the gospel is the foundation of our church. It is the motivation for why we do the things that we do, and it's the, the sustenation to keep us on the path that God has set us on. And so this is the grace of God for us, that we have been saved from our sin through Jesus' substitutionary death, and we have been raised with him in new life. Now, a typical misconception that surrounds the church today is that the gospel is just about getting me to heaven, right? It's, it's getting me out of the, the, the perils of hell and setting me in heaven for the day that I die, And that's not untrue, right? There is truth to that statement, but it's such a small and narrow view of the whole reality of the gospel. See, the gospel is more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. See, upon being saved by grace, not only do we escape hell, but we are given new life. And it's not just a futuristic, someday I'll have a new life. It's a new life that begins right now. And this doesn't mean, when people think of this, it's, it doesn't mean I don't become some sort of Jesus robot, right? I don't lose my, my personality. I don't lose the quirks that make me me. I don't lose my, my, my uniqueness in that sense. It, it means that where I find my identity as a person changes. Where we find our identity and worth now is connected to Jesus. Now, when we meet someone new, not long after introducing ourselves, exchanging names, one of the most common questions that is asked is, what do you do, right? What do you do for a living? And personally, I hate being asked this question because nothing shuts down a conversation faster than when somebody finds out I'm a pastor. Like, all right, well, I'm not going to tell you nothing, right? Uh, But this question, when we ask each other this question, has more to do than just with what we do vocationally. Right, our culture, our society, this is a, a real identity piece, right? How do you identify yourself? And being people, most of us are, are white and have European roots. We tend to identify ourselves by what we do. In fact, that's why a lot of our last names uh, are what they are. My last name is Schmidt, which in German would be uh, the equivalent of being a, a blacksmith. Um, other examples, uh, Miller would be somebody who mills wheat. Brewer, obviously, making beer, the God's gift to man. Taylor's sewing stuff together, making garments. Clark is somebody who would scribe stuff down. All of these names that are last names, right, are, are identifying your vocations, right? So people, look, what's your name? My name is John Clark. Oh, you must be a clerk. You're a scribe. 
for centuries, this is how we've been identified. And today, right, our, our names don't necessarily, like, I'm not, obviously, I'm not a blacksmith. Schmidt, I'm not, I didn't go into that family trade. But, but today, our names, uh, or not necessarily our names, but our identities are still very much rooted in what we do. We have this idea, that this mentality that, that what we do informs who we are. And so with being instilled in this culture, since adolescence, we are trying to make a name for ourselves by our achievements, our resume, the roles that we find ourselves in, our talents. And we're constantly striving to prove ourselves, right, to create a name for us, our identity, because linked to identity is value, worth, and lovability. But work Vocation isn't the only place where we go to find our identity. We might go to things, right? The toys we own, the house, the car, the sort of lifestyle that we can create for ourselves. That becomes a source of identity for us. Other times, relationships, right? We become defined, stay-at-home moms, this is a tendency for us to be defined by our role as mothers, right? That becomes our identity. And, and yes, God has blessed you with children. That is a blessing from God. But it becomes an identity, other relationships. We think of maybe our ideals become a source of identity for us, whether that's politically, uh, sexually, if that's racially or ethnically, our ideals can become a source of where we go to for our, our identity. Even our sufferings, our failures, those can be a source of identity for us, right? We're defined by this one hurtful time in my life. This has shaped me, it's molded me, that's where I get my identity from. Now, to put your identity, to find your identity in any of these things is volatile because these things can vanish at any moment in time. You could lose your job. Your kids could be a royal screw-up. Your marriage could tank. Your health wanes. Your bank account runs dry. And when these sort of changes happen, right, this rocks our worlds. It set us on a verge of identity crisis where we're wondering, if I'm not this, who am I? If I'm not a student, who am I? If I'm not a, a, an electrician, who am I? If I'm not a whatever, if I'm not a mom or a dad, who am I? Now this is where the gospel sets in and offers us even more good news. Not just that the problem of sin has been dealt with, but here we find a completely new identity. One that is secure one that is stable, it's full of hope, it's rooted in love. No matter what happens in your life, this identity will not change. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. Now what this means is that when you are in Christ, your faith, your trust, your life is in Christ, you are new. You have a new identity, a new source of identity. And so for people to be in Christ now becomes the primary and most important way that we identify yourselves, right? I say that I am a Christian, that I, when I say that, I'm identifying myself with Christ, that his righteousness is mine. And unlike the other ways of finding identity through what we do, this identity comes exclusively through what Christ has done. This has nothing to do with what you do. It has nothing to do with your accomplishments. 
This is all given to us by God's grace. In fact, this, this new identity comes complementary with salvation, right? You can't, you can't just be saved from hell and, and all the things that we think of when we think of being saved. This identity comes along with it. You can't divorce the two. See, because, because Christ was righteous, because he lived the perfect life and died the, per, the, the death what we deserve, we now are credited with his righteousness. We are because he was. Therefore, our identity is not marked by our actions or our failures. Being in Christ is what defines us. And when we see our identity in Christ, when we really explore what that looks like and survey scriptures and, and the life that Jesus led, what, what we see is that these identi this identity that God gives us uh, can really be summarized in four things. That we are a family of missionary servants learning to live life, making disciples who make disciples. I have five out there, but there's really four. Family, missionary, servants, and learners. Now, people hear this and they think, you know what, being a family, like living life as a family, being, being a missionary or a servant or, or, or just even learning, that stuff sounds like stuff serious Christians do. Right? It sounds invasive, right? I would prefer to rather be a, like a, just a Sunday kind of a guy. I'll maintain my Sundays. Maybe throw in a bonus night of the week and maintain that Sunday, Wednesday night. But to be just a Sunday, just a Wednesday person is to completely undervalue and misunderstand the work that Christ has done for you. See, living as a family of missionary servants who are learning together is not a matter of how involved or how busy you are with church activities. This is a matter of understanding your gospel identity, right? Who God has made you in Christ. And every person, every single person who puts their hope and their trust on the gospel receives these identities. These identities are embedded in you. That is the new man that God has created. That's the new one, the new one that has come now. And part of the Christian life, really the bulk of the Christian life, is learning how to live out of these identities rather than these identities that you would like to make for yourself. Now, just as a, a side promotion here, these next four weeks we're gonna be studying these identities, right? Family, missionary, servants, learners. I've put together a, a booklet. This is, uh, I call it a field guide for gospel identity. This is a four-week devotional. There's five days per each week uh, studying scriptures. It's gonna lead you through um, scriptures, reflecting on the passage, what is there for you to repent of, how can you share this with your missional community family, and what does it look like for you to change and to grow in your identity. This is something that it's available as you walk out the door. Uh, there's a little table there. I, I want everybody to grab one, and if there, we run out, there will be a digital version that I released this afternoon. Um, but this is meant to be a tool for us to help grow in these identities, to help us to step foot into these identities that God has given us in the gospel. And so today we are going to focus on the first identity that the gospel gives us, which is being part of God's family. Joseph Hellerman is an author. He wrote a book, author and scholar. He wrote a book called When the Church Was Family. It's, it's actually, 
It's an incredible book. I highly recommend it. But in this book, he says that there is no image for the church that occurs more often in the New Testament than the metaphor of family, right? That means anytime that the most, when when the apostles are referring to the church, they're most often using family language. And where I tend to disagree with Hellerman just a little bit is, isn't it the label that he gives us as a metaphor because the church isn't metaphorically a family. The church, the people of God are actually real family. It is a real, diverse, eternal family that God takes all the pieces and puts them together. Now this concept of family can be a mixed bag for us. Some people have had great family experiences, right? So the, so the idea of being a family, right, being in the family of God is endearing. Maybe our parents is, were, were, they're obviously not perfect, but, but they loved us to the best that they could. Right? They, they really did a good job of showing us what God was like and their love, unconditional love for us, which praise God for parents like that. In fact, that's for us parents, young parents, that's something for us to aspire to, right? How do we show our children the love of God in our parenting? You've had great relationships with brothers and sisters. They're your best friends, right? You grew up together. It's extraordinary. But then there's others of us who are like, that does not describe my family dynamic at all. My parents were mean. They were... They were cruel. They had high expectations that I could never really live up to. They were manipulative, maybe even abusive or absent. And so that we have this dysfunctional family background that comes as sort of as baggage when we use the term family. Our siblings, right? Our siblings was nothing but rivalry and disdain. It was a competition, always trying to assert yourself as the top dog. And so for, for those of us who have had family experience like this, when we hear this family language, it's like, no, thank you. I don't want to do anything with that. And let me just, if that was your family experience, let me just tell you, I'm grieved for that. Your parents sinned against you. Right? That, that's hurtful. But here's the good news of the gospel. The gospel rewrites the definition of what it means to be family. See, the kind of family that God creates is founded by love and exists in love. Now, if you'd open your Bibles with me, uh, to page 592. We're going to get, if you've noticed in the scripture reading, like this whole passage is just, I don't know how many times I didn't count, but love is over and over and over and over again. And what, what uh, John is showing us here is this love that God has for us and how this influences our family life as the church. So page 592 uh, I'm actually going to start in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, because this sort of is the foundation, and then he moves on to chapter 4. So this is what he says in chapter 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See, love is given. God's love is given to us. It is not earned. We don't position ourselves to become lovable and then God's like, yeah, that one's pretty good. I think I'll, I'll invest my love there. No, God, God sees us at our worst and he loves us to our best. He adopts us. He brings us into his family by his grace. If you remember Ephesians 1 through 3, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 last week, right, that we were dead in our sins. There was nothing 
lovable about us, but God set his love on us to make us alive. Now what happens when we, when we experience love, first and foremost, the dynamics change between us and God. A lot of us think of God as this distant, cold, heartless, grumpy old man up in the sky, always waving his cane at us, telling us to get off the grass, right? But God is nothing like this. We see a change in, in the dynamics between God and ourselves. Romans 8, 15 tells us that now in the gospel we receive a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. That's like, that's daddy language. God is not cold and distant. He's near to us. He's intimate with us. He gives us access to us. Now my oldest son, Kuiper, he's laid up on the couch right now. Uh, this sickness thing that's been going around hit us once again. But last night, Kuiper woke up probably once every 45 minutes in the middle of the night. And you know what? He, he'd wake up and he's confused. Like, this is probably like one of the first real times he's been sick, throwing up all the way, yeah, you know. And he wakes up in the middle of the night. And you know, what he, like, you know what he says? You know what he calls for? Daddy, mommy, daddy, mommy. And he does it really loud. I sleep really heavy. So he does it really loud until I finally wake up. He couldn't do that. Like, he wouldn't do that if he didn't think I loved him, right? If I didn't love him, he'd wake me up from my glorious slumber, and I'd be mad, right? Why are you waking me up? But he knows that because I love him, he can call on me anytime, day or night. And that's the way it is with God, that he says, cry out to me. I'm your daddy. I want to hear from you. The spirit that I've given you is meant to cry out to me. In fact, if we jump to... First uh, John chapter 4, in verse 13, he, he uses the same language where he says, here's how you know that you belong to me, that you abide in me, that you have my spirit. So that's the first way. It changes how we view God. He's our daddy. He's our, he's our close to us, endearing, compassionate father who loves us so deeply. But when we see God this way, it also changes the way that we view others. This is where we pick up here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. He starts out, listen to this. First word is identity language. Beloved. Right, that means those who are loved. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. Right, there's family language again, born of God, and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And what we see here is to, to be loved by God means that we have been born again. And because of our new birth that we can actually know who God is. And this is what we know about God, that he is love. And when we know that God is love, we see how he loves us. But this also changes our heart to now where we were cold toward God. Right? Isn't, isn't, it's so funny. It's weird how we see God as cold and distance, distant to us, right? It, that's actually the way that we were in our sin. We didn't want to have anything to do with God. We were dead in our sins, following the paths of the world. And so now this changes our hearts. It fills us with affection for God that we become a lover of God. And this is a love that is deeper than, than any other natural love that we experience in our lives. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, he identifies there's four different kinds of loves. There are three loves which are natural, that, that come naturally in this world, and then there's a supernatural love that can only come from God. So the first three loves are, is a sort of familial, familial, familial love, right? 
mom and dad have a kid, and just boom, instantly they feel love for this child. They're filled with affection for this child. There's the friendship love, the way that you love your buddies, lady friends, gal pals. And then there's this romantic love, right? The, the kind that you share with your spouse, this, this endearing sort of, and, and it sort of steps into, for, the first love is like, I love you because God put you in a family and we've got to love each other, right? The next one is like, I love you because it's my choice to love you and we can hang out when we li- like to hang out with each other. Third one is like, I love you and so I'm going to spend my whole life with you. And then there's this fourth love that only God can, can project. It's this unconditional love that I'm going to love you regardless of if you love me back or not. This unconditional supernatural love. It's with this love that God pours out on us. And so in this sense, the way that God loves us, it's more than just these three natural, like the familial, the friendship, or or, or even the romantic love. This is a love that, that takes on a whole new depth and dimension. It's this unconditional love because we have been loved in the gospel that we know that God loves us. In verse 9, um, John picks up, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's how we know that, we, that God loves us. That he sent his only son to the world that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that propitiation word, that might be a word like what is that? Propitiation is, is the love, or it's the act of atoning sacrifice. That God looked at us and he loved us first. He saw us in our sin. He's like, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to step in your place. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to do away with all your sins. And so we know it's because of the cross that we are made right with God. Sin is dealt with. We're forgiven. But then verse 17 and 18 say that, that this is why we have confidence because of Christ's work. This is why we have confidence against judgment, right? This is why we don't fear because our identity is secure in Christ, that we are living in Christ. And this is really, not not only does it keep us from fearing God, but this keeps us from fearing each other. If my identity is secure in Christ and I know how God views me, I, I, I don't, what you think about me doesn't really matter all that much anymore, right? If God has the, the, the most important say of who I am, then what you say about me doesn't matter a whole lot. And so in this way, it keeps the fear away. It it destroys the fear that bars us from community. And without the gospel, without knowing the gospel, community will always be rocky. It'll always be turbulent. We'll never know where we stand with other people. It's hard to really be in community without the gospel. But... If our faith is in the gospel, we are secure. And that means the other people, the other individuals who have been adopted by God through his grace are also part of God's family too. Right? That they become your brothers and sisters. So what's true of you is true of them. That their sin is dealt with too. And so as Christians, when we look at across the pews, right? When we look across the aisle, we don't see somebody in all their flaws and faults and wrongdoings. We see them the way God sees them because we know that's the way God sees us, as a forgiven, loved, and adopted child. It's because of this, because God has loved us. 
He has adopted us together that we become brothers and sisters and we love each other with a love this world doesn't know. Here again he says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now when we talk about this, when we, when we, when we throw around the word love, a lot of times there's this sort of um, theoretical idea of what it looks like to love someone or if it's just like sort of a, a feeling. But, but what we see here, the love that the church has for one another is a real and tangible expression of the love of God that's been poured into you. It's, it's far more than just having uh, warm thoughts toward your fellow congregants. It is a real tangible expression of genuine love for one another, that this is love in action. Now in the New Testament, when we go through the New Testament, we see that, that there's this love that exists between churches. The church in Corinthian, uh, uh, they help out the, the, the Jerusalem church. They're going through financial crisis. They're helping them out because they love their neighbor. They're praying for them, financial support. They're in solidarity together. They're gospel partners in a sense. This is why we love being part of Acts 29. Because we get to link arms with brothers and sisters that maybe uh, geography keeps us apart from, but there's still this love for each other. And that's a good thing, right? But the main place where God's love is exchanged, where it's, it's projected and, and demonstrated is within the local church via relationships. Now the church isn't a building. The church is not a structure. The church in its truest understanding, is a network of relationships joined together as family through the gospel. And so for the church to function as God intends it to, it must function as a family. And in order to function as family, there has to be proximity. We have to live life on life. right? How else are you going to develop relationship? How else are you going to communicate this love for one another? Now, I grew up in a church where it was a small town. Everybody knew each other. Um, you'd be friendly on Sunday mornings. You'd say, hi, how you doing? But still, throughout the week, with the exception of Sunday morning from like 10.30 to 11.30, there was this, everybody was sort of detached from one another. And, and from what I understand of my friends and uh, whatnot, people who grow up in the Midwest with a, a church experience, it's not uncommon for their church experience to be like mine, where Sunday mornings we're all friendly together, but then outside of that, and during the week, we're not really doing life together. And it's so unfortunate because this makes a mockery of what God intends for us uh, as his redeemed family. Now, some churches, they, they realize what's going on. They, right, everybody's kind of detached. How do we get them to be more connected? And so what happens is by, churches start offering all kinds of programs and events throughout the week, right? How often can we get people to be in this church building at once? But what ends up happening is these, we start developing these programmed relationships in sort of a sterile environment. Right? We're not in each other's homes. We're not, we're not interacting in our shared spaces. We're coming to church. We're having pre-programmed relationships. And rather than feeling connected to one another, uh, rather than knowing each other and being known, we just feel busy. Because right? when you're busy like that, there is no 
real room for relationships. One of my mentors, um, gosh, I can't think of his name right now. That's terrible. Peterson, Eugene Peterson. He said, I, I came across something this week, and he said that busyness is just another form of laziness. I was like, is that true? <laughs> Seems kind of paradoxical, right? But when you think about it, it's true. To be busy, right, to keep yourself preoccupied, keeps us from the real work of relationships. I was like, in that way, yeah. To be busy, it is just being lazy. It gives off the appearance of being busy and involved, but here we are, we, we are detached. But the solution to this is not at the other end of the spectrum, Right, if, if one end of the spectrum is sort of like, let's be together in sort of sterile environments, the other one is to be, be together in sort of this uh, organic, um, natural sort of communal life. It's not, that's not the answer. Now, here, I'll t- this is kind of embarrassing. When I was in college, I was going through this change of theology. I was trying to understand what, it, what does it mean to live as God's family? Like, what, what does it look like to, to do church with other people? And I may have read one or two many Shane Claiborne books. If you don't know Shane Claiborne, he's just like a super hippie dude, promotes selling everything you own, moving into a big commune with a bunch of other Christians, which might be cool. I don't know. But this, my wife and I are engaged at this time, and she's like freaked out, right? It's like, you mean we're going to start living with other people? And uh, thankfully, that's not what happened. But, but you, you wouldn't want to live with me anyway. But here is like a sort of a man-made expression of what it looks like to do church. But what we should be doing is going back to Scripture. What does it look like in a biblical sense to do church together? And one of the most rich passages in all, in, uh, all of Scripture where we see this is in Acts 2, verse 42. I'm going to flip there. I think we got it on the screen, so you don't have to flip there if you don't want to. But um, here's what it should. This, this is right after Pentecost. People coming to know Jesus. And this is what happens. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done throughout the, through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this passage sheds light on what it looks like when a Christian community is functioning correctly, right? When their identity is grounded in the gospel and they're living out of this identity. Now, obviously, you survey this passage and you see they're, they're together frequently, right? There's the proximity. They're learning together. They're eating. They're worshiping together, supporting one another, praying for one another. They're on mission together. You'll notice here it doesn't say anything about living arrangements, right? It, they're, they're probably still living in their own homes. But what this shows us is how intertwined their lives have become. See, as God's family... There are 
rhythms, weekly, even daily rhythms. See, this, is, this isn't just a Sunday thing. He says day by day, these rhythms were happening. Now, if you think about the daily and weekly rhythms that you have with your biological family, right? You, you guys eat together. Um, you celebrate birthdays together. You, you play together, recreate. You, you bless one, one another by doing things for each other, words of affirmation. You learn together. You enjoy hobbies together. These are the similar rhythms that, that the early church adopted together. Right? They, they were sharing meals. They were recreating. They were helping each other out, celebrating, worshiping. All of these things can be accomplished by living in your own home, but being intentional with these relationships. And the reality is nobody has the bandwidth to do this with everybody in the church, right? If you think about, oh, I've got to do this with everyone in this church, there's probably like 70 people in here right now. It is impossible. You do not have the bandwidth to do this with 70 people. But what we see by Jesus' ministry, you do have the bandwidth. He had the bandwidth to do it with 12 disciples. And so what's that look like for us? Our context, that looks like missional communities, groups of 10 to 20 people that are living life together as, as Jesus modeled with his disciples. And we see in this, our lives can intertwine with our missional community family. Right? We, we receive opportunities to love each other tangibly in a physical sense. Right? We're supporting each other when there's need. In fact, there, there was a really bad uh, sledding accident yesterday where um, one of the girls at the Davenport Church broke her leg in a really, she had to be lifelighted to Iowa City. Um, terrible accident. And already by this morning, I think by the time the, the gathering began, two hours had elapsed and, and almost $2,000 from church family and extended family had been donated to this family to help them in their need. This looks like other things, not just financially, but helping each other with our kids, babysitting so somebody can get a date night, right? helping raise each other's kids. It can look like um, working on projects. I had a couple of guys a couple of years ago that helped me build a fence in my backyard. I didn't know how to do it. They did. They helped me out, right? So physically, they are stepping in. But even more importantly, the physical stuff's important, but even more importantly is the spiritual aspect that oftentimes can get neglected or, or sort of overshadowed by these physical things, that as God's family, we care for each other spiritually, reminding each other of the gospel, right? Checking, hey, brother, how is your heart doing? Right? How are your affections for Jesus? Do, do you feel your, your old identity is creeping back in? Do you feel that, that, that it's, you're having a hard time believing your real, true identity in Christ? Looks like praying for each other. So many of us are going through tough times. But to know your brother and sister are lifting you up before God, petitioning on your behalf, that's a way to love each other. Listen, being here on Sunday mornings to worship together is a way you love your church family. And I'm not just saying that so you come in and I got somebody to preach to, though that's nice. But here, we are strengthened as a familial unit. When I hear when I hear somebody standing next to me singing about God's goodness, when I know that they're going through the ringer right now, that is edifying and strengthening for my faith. For you to do that, and not in some cheesy, generic, untrue sort of way, but for you to do that strengthens my faith. 
And spiritually, we study the word together. The word of God is our source of sustenance. We do it together. Now, here's where the pushback comes. Because a lot of us, if we're not living or or at least have some sort of framework for this already in our lives, a lot of us are thinking, how am I going to do all this? It sounds like a, a lot of work. It sounds like uh, on top of my work schedule, my hobbies, my friends, and I need my free time, right? And, and since we live in the Midwest, we have a high value on our nuclear family. How am I going to find time for this? In fact, if, if we were to prioritize, most of us, if we were to prioritize things in our life, it would probably go God's first, because we're good Christians, and then family second, and then the church is third, and then maybe work or whatever we're really into, you know, follows down the line. But this is a false dichotomy between God and his church. Uh, Augustine said that, that you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. They are linked together. And so what a, what a more accurate gospel-centered uh, prioritization of your life looks like is, is God and his church are together as one. And then my, my priority as a family and my nuclear family, caring and loving for them. And actually, they're, they're not contradictory to each other. Right? To love God and to love the church is what your family needs to see because that demonstrates God's love for us. I'm getting ahead of myself here. For us to put the family before the church, it's family idolatry. Right? It's idolatrous for us to put our family in a place where, where they frankly cannot support you. And if you think I'm making this up, Jesus actually has the strongest words against this. There's actually two places in Scripture, and just for the sake of your ears, I'm not going to go to the harshest one, but I do want to take you to Matthew 10, verses 34 and 38. When people are, are asking him what Jesus is up to, and he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. What? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These are Jesus' words. These sound harsh, right? You look at this and wonder, like, is Jesus anti-family? I thought he was nice, sweet Jesus. But what Jesus is getting at here is the priority of God's family and God's church over everything else in our life. And when it comes to this, Jesus isn't a hypocrite, right? Jesus isn't, like, blowing smoke at us, trying to get us to buy into something that he himself isn't bought into. Because here in Mark 3... Uh, I got these up on the, word, on the screen too. In Mark 3, 31 through 35, uh, it says this, and Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him, right? They sent somebody in to go get Jesus and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus and they said to him, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. They're looking for you. And Jesus answered them. Here we go. Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. Now, this is kind of outrageous for us, right? We love our families. This sounds really harsh, strong language, but however strong it comes across for us here, this would have been even more intense for a Jewish society. In the New Testament, the most important group in your life was your biological family. And of those relationships, the closest bond that you have was between your siblings. And so what Jesus is saying here when he says, my family is not those who is defined by blood or DNA. My family are those who do the will of God. This is mind-blowing. And what he's saying here is that in the family of God, there is a deeper bond than flesh and blood. The family of God has an eternal bond that will be sustained for all ages in the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. And if you even just take a step out of his earthly family and think about Jesus in sort of a cosmic sense, Jesus left his heavenly home with God his Father, perfect unity, and stepped out into this world to gather for him the church. Jesus is no hypocrite when it comes to this. Jesus would never ask you to do something that he himself hasn't done. And listen, the family bond of the Trinity is better than your family. We love our family. We love our kids. We love our, our brothers, sisters, moms, dad. We love them. But what God is offering us is to be part of the Trinity, to share in the love that's going on, existed from eternity past to eternity future with God. I hope, I hope, my hope is that this is not, I hope what this does is blows up your vision for being part of God's family. Like provides a glorious, beautiful, compelling desire in your heart to be part of this. Now, when we live our lives this way, when we radically prioritize our life and our love for others in a supernatural sense, right? when we're living this kind of lifestyle that's loving others with God's love, when we live this way, two incredible things happen. I'm moving towards the end here. I don't know how long I'm going, but I'm trying to move through this. This stuff is exhilarating. The first thing that happens is we make God visible. Verse 12, going back to 1 John chapter 3. Let me see if I can, I hope I got my little bookmark there. It might take me a minute. 1 John, uh, no, chapter 4, I lied. Go over to verse 12. John says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us. So you love your church family the way that God calls us to, to, to pour your life out for them, to live life sacrificially and generously and graciously shows the watching world the power and the realness of God's love. We have the opportunity as a church to flesh out God's love for us. And listen, when you live this way, there is no other explanation for loving people this way. There is no reason why you would love people who aren't your family in this radical way if it weren't for the gospel. It demands an explanation. Now, I'm gonna fly through this. Two things, like if you think about it, about God's love, it shows two things. One, in what it overcomes. Now, when, when, 
when the Apostle Paul is writing in Romans, or Galatians, excuse me, he, he says something about how the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. So there used to be a, a big division between Jews and Gentiles, males, females, slaves, servants. And what he does, he, the gospel radically unites people who are very different, different worldviews, different status, different whatever, and brings them together. Now that's fascinating. In a world that's complete, probably the most divided we've ever been, the gospel is compelling in this way. But here's another thing, in a more personal sense. When we love our brothers and sisters in this way, when, we, when you live life on life, you will get hurt, right? Amen? You will get sinned against. People will hurt your feelings, not on purpose. It'll just happen. It's a product of when you get sinners together, you're going to sin against each other. But the gospel shows the power of God's love and what it overcomes, that we forgive one another, that we're gracious toward one another. This is compelling. This, this kind of steadfast, covenantal, through thick and thin kind of love is what sustains the church and what ultimately points us to Jesus because that's the way that God loves us. Now the second thing that's supernatural that happens when we love our church family this way God's love is, it says, perfected, but a better translation is completed. God's love is completed in us, and that's in verse 12. To be loved by God and to not love our church family as God intends us to love is to live life as an open circuit. I'm not an electrician, so this might flop, but, but the idea, a closed circuit, electric, electricity is flowing, lights turn on, but, but if we're living life and we're not dispensing, we're not making the connection to our church family, the, the circuit is open. It doesn't work. It doesn't function. It doesn't display the light of the gospel. And so in closing the circuit, the love of God is completed in us. In fact, you'll never get the full experience of God's breadth and depth of his love until you are loving a missional community family. Because this requires you to draw on God's love in a way that is not possible in your own strength. You don't have that source of love within you. Now I'm wrapping it up here. I don't know where I'm at with time. I just feel like I'm talking forever. If you're, if you're trying to really love people right, in your MC, right, to really be family with your church family, to live life on life, to know and be known, and you're trying to do it in your own strength, not only will you fail at doing it, you'll burn out while you're trying to do it. We get frustrated, we become tired. Living life like a family of missionary servants who are learning will feel like a burden to you. Right? We don't naturally gravitate toward life on life. That's part of the fallen condition. The part of fallen condition means that we want to separate ourselves, isolate. And so living as God's family while it's meant to be the closest thing to, to, to heaven here on earth, will feel like misery to you. And if it feels like this, it's probably because loving others has become a new law for you. It's become a stipulation that in order to feel loved, to be loved by God, you have to first love others. Right? It's this idea of do this, then this. And what this is is just another form of legalism dressed up in prettier clothes. 
This is anti-gospel, and it stops you. It stunts you from loving the way that God intends for you to love, but also receiving the love that God has for you. And so, friends, the good news is that in Christ that you were loved first. Verse 19 says that, that because he loved us first, that we should love. And without remembering that truth, loving others becomes oppressive and burdensome to us. Now, the love of God, when we understand it, when we receive it, when we live in it, this compels us. It, it sets uh, set us in motion for living and loving our church family. And this is, guys, this is the work of the Spirit. Think of this. The same Spirit that God has given you that cries, Abba, Father. The same Spirit makes you look across the aisle and say, Brother, Sister. So that means, what this means, when the Spirit is, is inclining us towards our brothers and sisters, when we feel the pull to cut ourselves off, to ignore, to neglect, to, to be disengaged specifically from our missional community family, that is not the Spirit of God at work in us. That is the old man, the old man that Christ did away with. He's rearing his ugly head again, saying, hey, you know what, this stuff, it's for the birds. But when our identity is rooted in the love of God in Christ we know that God has adopted us, he's brought us in, he's loved us with a steadfast love and he, that love is meant to be shared with our family. And I think that this is why, these two things are so connected that John, as he closes uh, in verse 21, he says, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. These things are inseparable. And so let me close with two application points here. The first one is this. If you're not in a missional community yet, we want to invite you into one. This is a place where you could really experience what it looks like to live as the family of God together. And it might be scary, whatever. I, I know there's all kinds of reservations, and I want to be sensitive to that. I want to bully you into it. That's not my intentions, but I want to invite you because there's something so sweet, so robust. And listen, if you think you know what missional community is like and you haven't been to a missional community yet, you don't know what it's like. Come see it. Jesus always would say, come and see. Come and look for yourself. In fact, come to the visitor forum right after this. We'll help you find a missional community. The second thing that I, I just want to put out there is for those of you who are living as church family, and we're doing it imperfectly, right? We're not doing it. We're not, we're, it's not like Acts 2.42 where everything's clicking on all cylinders, but we're trying, we're making an honest attempt at this. But here's the thing, there are people in our city, there are lonely people in our city who are longing, desiring to be part of something like this. To be known and to be loved, a place where they can know others and love others. And so here's my, here's my um, invitation to you is to be liberal with your love for these people. To be liberal with your invitations and inviting them in to be part of something like this. And a lot of times, there's story after story after people, they didn't want anything to do with God, but they saw how God's people were living together in family, and they saw that radical self-service and love, and they just sort of like drifted into it. In fact, there's probably some people in your missional community that you can think of that maybe aren't like bought into the whole Jesus thing, but they kind of like hanging out with your missional community. That is a way, that is a tool, that is a way that God can woo them into himself by seeing his love in action towards one another. So that's my, those are my two applications. Now let me, let me say this. 
One of the common practices as a family is to eat together. And every Sunday morning, we have the opportunity to come and to feast on this meal together. Now, this is a spiritual meal. Like, nobody's going to get filled up on this little piece of nugget that I give you, right? You're like, oh, I don't need lunch today. But this here is a, a spiritual meal that fills our soul. This is a means of grace in which we, we bring in the grace of God to us deep in our soul. And what this points to is a day where all of our family, all of the saints, throughout all space and time, throughout all geography, will be gathered at the banquet table with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we will feast as a family. And today, when we come up, this is a foretaste of that. This is a glimpse into that beautiful day when we're together, when there's no sin, right? when there's no more sin or division between us as, as a family. Or there's, it's a day when the family of God is perfected. So we look forward to that. I'm going to pray, and if the men who are serving would come forward. Father, we give you thanks for your gospel and that you not only saved us from sin, you gave us a new life a new heart that loves, a new identity that thrives in you. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen us in these identities. If this is something that's new, Father, I pray that you give us the humility to seek your will in our lives. I pray that you would give us the humility to ask questions and explore this together, Father. And for those of us who are, are grinding it out, that, we, that we're in community and maybe it's burdensome, Father, I pray that you would help us to throw our cares, cast our cares and our burdens upon you to see how this is life-giving for us to live in this way. And just as Jesus said to us, it's better to give than to receive. It is better for us to give it in on our family, to love them. And this meal is a perfect example of it. It was better for Jesus to give us himself, forgive us our sins, to make us new. So Father, pray that you would renew us in Christ's gospel, um, solidify our identity in him and make us new creatures who love you and who love our church family. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.